Chapter Three of the Second Latchkey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gesine. The Second Latchkey by Charles Norris Williamson and Alice Muriel Williamson. CHAPTER Three, WHY SHE CAME Surprised by the abruptness of his question, Ansley's eyes dropped from the eyes of her host, which tried to hold them. She felt that she ought to be angry with him for taking advantage of her generosity, for it amounted to that. Yet anger would not come, only shame and the desire to hide a thing which would change his gratitude to contempt. "'Don't let's waste time talking about me,' she said. "'We haven't arranged—we've arranged everything as well as we can. "'For the rest I must trust luck, and you. "'Do tell me why you came here, why you thought you came here, I mean, "'for I'm convinced you were sent for my sake by any higher powers there may be. "'I felt that the minute I saw you. "'I feel it ten times more strongly now. "'I know that whatever your reason was, it's nothing to be ashamed of.' "'I am ashamed,' Ansley was led on to confess. "'You'd despise me if I told you, "'for you can't realise what my life's been for five years, "'and that's my one excuse. "'Only a fool would want a woman like you "'to excuse herself for anything. "'I swear I wouldn't despise you. "'I couldn't. "'If you should tell me, "'knowing you as little or as well as I do, "'that you'd been plotting a murder,' I'd be certain you were justified, and my first thought would be to save you, as you are saving me now. Ansley felt again the man's intense magnetism. Suddenly she wanted to tell him everything. It would be a relief. She would watch his face and see how it changed. It would be like having a verdict of the world on what she had done, or meant to do. I saw an advertisement in the morning post, she said with a kind of breathless violence, from a man who who wanted to meet a girl with a view to marriage. The words brought a blush so painful that the mounting blood forced tears to her eyes. But she looked her vis-a-vis -vis unwaveringly in the face. That did not change at all, unless the interest in his eyes grew warmer. The sympathy she saw there gave Ansley a new and passionate desire to defend herself. If he had shown disgust, she would not have cared to try, she thought. "'I told you it was horrid, and not interesting or romantic,' she dashed on. "'But I was desperate. Mrs. Ellsworth is awful. "'I don't suppose you ever met such a woman. "'She's not cruel about starving my body. "'It's only my soul she starves. "'What business have I with a soul, except in church, "'where it's proper to think about such things? "'But she nags, nags. "'She makes my hair feel as if it were turning grey at the roots, "'at my face drying up like an apple. I wasn't nineteen when I came to her. I'm twenty-three now, and I feel old, desiccated, thanks to those piling up hundreds of days with her. They've killed my spirit. I used to be different. I can feel it. I can see it in the mirror. It isn't only the passing days, but having nothing better to look forward to. I'm too cowardly, or too religious or something, to kill myself, even if I knew how to, decently. 
but the deadliness of it all, the airlessness of her house and her heart. A man couldn't imagine it. She's made me forget not only my own youth, but that there's youth in the world. Why, at first I was so wild I should have loved to say dreadful things or strike her, but now I haven't the spirit left to feel like that. My blood's turning white. The other day when I was reading aloud to Mrs. Ellsworth, I read a lot, the stupidest parts of the papers and the silliest books that turn my brain to fluff. I caught sight of an advertisement in the personal column. I stopped just in time and didn't read it out. Only a glimpse I had, for I was in the midst of something else when my eyes wandered. But when Mrs. Ellsworth was taking her nap after luncheon, I got the post again and read the advertisement through carefully. The reason I was interested was because even the glance I took showed that the girl who was wanted seemed in some ways rather like me. The advertisement said she must be from twenty-one to twenty-six, needn't be a beauty, but of pleasant appearance, money no object. The essentials were that she must have a fair education and be of good birth and manners, so as to command a certain position in society. I believe those were the very words and it didn't seem too conceited to think that I answered the description. I'm not bad-looking, and my mother's father was an earl, an Irish one. I couldn't get the advertisement out of my head. It fascinated me. "'No wonder!' exclaimed Mr. Smith. He had been listening intently, and though she had paused, panting a little more than once, he had not broken in with a word. "'Do you honestly think it no wonder?' Ansley flushed at him. "'It was like a prisoner seeing a key sticking in a door that has always been locked,' he said. "'How strange you should think of that!' she cried. "'It was the thought which came into my mind, and seemed to excuse me if anything could.' Ansley felt grateful to the man. She was sure she could never have explained herself in this way, or pleaded her own cause with the real Mr. Smith.' A man cold-blooded enough to advertise for a wife well-born and able to command a certain position in society would have frozen her into an ice-block of reserve. She might possibly have accepted this proposition. One couldn't speak of it in the ordinary way as a proposal. Provided that on seeing her he had judged her suitable for the place, but she could never have talked her heart out to him as she was led on to do by this other man, equally a stranger yet sympathetic because of his own trouble and the mystery which made of him a figure of romance. "'It isn't strange I should think of a prison door and the key,' her companion said. "'That was the situation. N. Smith was rather clever in his way. There must be many girls of good family and good looks who are in prison, pining to escape. He must have had a lot of answers, that fellow, but none of the girls could have come within a mile of you.' I'm selfish. I bless my lucky stars he didn't turn up here. I dare say it's the best thing that could happen, Ansley agreed with a sigh. Probably he's horrible. But there was one thing. I thought, though he must be a snob and vulgar, advertising as he did for a wife of good birth, the very thing looked as if he were no worse than a snob. Not a villain, I mean. Otherwise I shouldn't have dared answer but I did answer the same day, while I had the courage. I posted a letter with some of Mrs. Ellsworth's when she sent me out to drop into the box. 
His address was N.S. The Morning Post, and I told him to send a reply, if he wrote, to the stationery shop and library, where Mrs. Ellsworth makes me go every day to change her books. And the answer? What was it like? What impression did it give you? questioned the man who sat in Mr. Smith's place. Oh, it was written in a good hand, but it was a stiff, commonplace sort of letter, except that it asked me to wear a white rose. White roses happen to be the ones I like best. So do I, said Mr. Smith. Did he tell you to come to a table here and wait for him? Not exactly. He was to meet me in the foyer. But if he did not, I was to understand he'd been delayed, and in that case I must come to the restaurant and inquire for a table engaged by Mr. N. Smith. Lots of times I decided not to do anything. But you see, I came, and this is my reward. A poor one, her companion finished. I don't mean that. I mean he hasn't come at all. Maybe he never meant to. Maybe he's got some letter he liked better than mine, and arranged to meet the girl somewhere else. A man of that sort wouldn't write to tell the straight truth in time, and save the unwanted one from humiliation. Are you very sorry he didn't? No, Ansley said frankly. I'm not sorry. It's good to be able to help someone. I'm glad I came. So am I. Mr. Smith answered with a sudden change in his voice from calm to excitement. And now the moment isn't far off, I think, for the help to be given. The men I spoke of are here. They're in the restaurant. You can't see them without turning your head, which would not be wise. They're speaking to a waiter. They haven't seen me yet, but they're sure to look soon. They're pointing to a table near us. It's free. The waiter's leading them to it. In an instant, you'll have a better view of them than I shall. Now. But don't look up yet. From under her lashes, Ansley saw, in the way women do see without seeming to use their eyes, two men conducted to a table directly in front of her. As she sat on her host's right, at the end of the table, not opposite to him, this gave her the advantage, or disadvantage, of facing the newcomers fully, while Mr. Smith, who had faced them as they entered, would have his profile turned toward their table. The pair seated themselves in the same way that Ansley and her companion were placed, one at the right hand of the other. This caused the first man to face the girl fully, and gave her the second in profile. One table only intervened between Mr. Smith's and that selected by the late arrivals, and the latter had hardly sat down when the party of four at the intermediate table rose to go. Under cover of their departure, bowing of waiters, and readjustment of ladies' sabler ermine stoles, Ansley ventured a lightning glance at the men. She saw that both were black-haired and black-bearded, with dark skins and long noses. There was a slight suggestion of resemblance between them. They might be brothers. They were in evening dress, but did not look, Ansley thought, like gentlemen. Mr. Smith was eating blen au caviar, apparently with enjoyment. He called a waiter and told him to put more whipped cream on the caviar as yet untouched in the middle of Ansley's pancake. "'That's better, I think,' he said genially. And as the waiter went away, "'What are they doing now?' 
Ansley lifted her champagne glass as an excuse to raise her eyes. I'm afraid they've seen us and are talking about you. Can't we... hadn't we better go? Certainly not, replied Mr. Smith. At least I can't. But if you repent... I don't, Ansley broke in. I was thinking of you, of course. Bless you, said her host. His tone was suddenly gay. She glanced at him and saw that his face was gay also. His eyes bright and challenging, his look almost boyish. She had taken him for thirty-three or four. Now she would have guessed him younger. Ansley could not help admiring his pluck, for he had said that the arrival of these men meant danger. She ought to be sorry as well as frightened because they had come, but at that moment she was neither. Her companion's example was contagious. Her spirits rose, and the thought flashed through her head. This adventure won't end here. If she had had time, she would have been ashamed of her gladness, but there was no time. Smith was talking again in a suppressed yet cheerful tone. You won't forget that we're Mr. and Mrs. Nelson Smith? No, no, I shan't forget. You may have to call me Nelson and I... to call you Ansley. It's a pretty name, odd for a woman to have. How did you get it? Oh, you don't want to hear that now. Why not? Unless you'd rather not tell me. We can't do anything more till the blow falls, except enjoy ourselves and go on with our dinner. How did you come to be Ansley? It was part of my mother's maiden name. She was an Ansley Seaton. There's a Lord Ansley Seaton, isn't there? Yes. Related to you? A cousin. But Grail isn't a name in their set. He and his wife have forgotten my existence. I'm not likely to remind them of it. His wife was an American girl, wasn't she? How odd that you should know. Not very. I remember there being a lot in the papers about the wedding six or seven years ago. The girl was very rich, a Miss Haverstall. Her father's lost his money since then. How can you keep such uninteresting things in your mind? just now. They're not uninteresting. They concern you. Lord Ansley Seaton's affairs don't concern me, and never will. I wonder, said Smith, looking thoughtful, and the girl wondered too, not about her future or her relatives, but what the next few minutes would do with this strange young man, and how at such a time he could bear to talk commonplaces. If you're trying to keep me from being nervous, she whispered, it's not a bit of use. I can't think of anything or any one except those men. They've stopped whispering, but they're looking at you. Now, they're getting up. They're coming toward us. End of chapter 3 Recorded by Gesine in October 2007